far from the beaten path lies a friendly little inn. Girl, you better come get your quitter before I chop his head off. Where folks come from miles around. Hold on. It's so sad to be Relax and make new friends. Money down. I'm Tanya. I'm Bill McWillie. Melvin Crenshaw. This is my cousin, Chrissy. Relative? Cousin. Are you okay, Mayor Revan? Sorry. Crenshaw? Evelyn? <laughs> Tell your little wife I'll have a surprise for her. Where no one ever complains. You mean we got to go to bed after? We have to. And get my ass killed by some old crazy white woman? No way, Jose. Where people are dying to get a reservation. Hello? Hello? And any moment might be checkout time. I'm getting out of here. Is this any way to run a motel? That's your life it is. Mountaintop Motel Massacre. it been since you had yourself a big hot screaming ear full of forgotten horrors <laughs> well that's too long pull in close now for a crepuscular half hour or so of the forgotten horrors podcast with your hosts john woolley michael h price and my own self wolf brand jack and once again our thanks here at the forgotten horrors podcast to wolf brand jack uh, i'm john woolley and with me is my uh unindicted co-conspirator uh michael h price michael how are you Ah, just glad to be here, as usual. As usual. And we've got one of your favorite actors in this uh, film we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, One of your very favorite actors and uh, an an unusual and not often seen picture called Mountaintop Motel Massacre. And the actor we're talking about is Bill Thurman. I, I guess Bill Thurman did a lot of A pictures, but I guess maybe um uh uh what, last picture show, coaching last picture show is maybe maybe the one people remember him most for. You know That's the one yeah, I, I would I would think Bill would rather be uh remembered as a versatile all round Texas based actor. Mm-hmm. And he was just as proud of his Larry Buchanan pictures as he was of his Peter Bogdanovich picture, The Last Picture Show. Well, he made seven of those damn things for Larry Buchanan, didn't he? Oh, yeah. He was very prolific, uh, very loyal to the local scene, mm-hmm. had strong ties to the historic show place 
called Casa Manana in Fort Worth. And uh, I used to run into him just bopping down the halls at at uh, Dallas uh, TV station Channel 27, which had the uh, pre-Turner Classic Movies uh, advantage of having all those uh, MGM and Warner Brothers pictures in its 16-millimeter vault. Now, Mark Lamberti was, uh, was doing the, uh, my, my next, my next, my next name to mention. And, uh, you know, I'd be, uh, we did, uh, Mark and I did several, um, telecine conversions of the pictures in his vault that is film to video for convenience of handling. Yes. And, uh, we'd be in there in the lab shepherding that uh, telecine transfer and, Billy Thurman just pop his head in and say, how y'all doing? <laughs> oh, boy. What a, what a cat. He was, he was quite an actor. Okay. Joey Hambrick, as you know, is our uh, producer and engineer and always wants us to give a little synopsis before we start in on dissecting the picture. It's going to be a quick one, isn't it? Because it's essentially a woman returns home from an institution. Don't know what she was doing in the institution. They never tell us, but apparently it wasn't bad enough to keep her in there forever. So they let her loose and she gets back to this really ratty motel that she runs just in time to murder her daughter who is involved in witchcraft, Mm -hmm. Um, which is about as, as, as complex as the plot gets. Because after she murders her daughter and manages to talk the uh, local law into believing that she has nothing to do with it, people start showing up at what must be one of the worst motels ever put on celluloid. A horrible motel. But yet all of a sudden, people are renting this motel out like it's a, uh, like it's a Motel 6 and they're leaving the light on for them. You've got couple of crusty old guys you've got honeymooners you got those two wannabe country music stars cousin, oh, yeah. cousins that are wanting to um uh, uh go to nashville and then their car breaks down so they go to this uh mountaintop motel and then a guy passing himself off as what may be the worst record company executive impersonation ever put on celluloid and uh, then heads roll, and then uh, kind of the witchcraft comes back in again sort of at the end. Uh, it's a slasher film from the golden age of the slasher film, and I guess the first thing to talk about is, and you know something about the genesis of the picture because you were talking about how you remember it was uh, started, uh, production was started, mostly shot in, in, in Louisiana, but uh, production started in, in 1981, I believe you were saying? In 1981, that our uh, musician friends Carol Hubbard and Ora May Hubbard were working on the eerie violin scoring parts. Yes, yes. Movie. And uh, uh, Jim McCulloch, the director, uh, that is Jim Sr., his partners with his son Jim Jr., um, Jim McCulloch was calling the picture at the time Mountaintop Motel. <laughs> and somehow it's the early the ugly early publicity materials list that title of New World Pictures, the uh, rather upscale exploitation film outfit, got its hands into two McCulloch productions from Louisiana about this time, and of course it it was it was decided on the spot that the title needed a little Oscar Mazula. Mm-hmm. 
or oof. And so, well, why don't you go to the Mountaintop Motel Massacre? And they did. Now, and so they did. And so New World had some sort of a presence in Texas at that time, correct? They had a lot of uh, they had a lot of investors based in Dallas. Uh, they had New World had, <clears throat> thanks to the influence of Roger Corman and and Julie Corman, uh, New World also had art film ambitions. Yes, and did in fact deliver on some of that, including a, a very prominent picture of the day called "Kiss of the Spider Woman." Yes, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, uh, New World remained at heart. <laughs> Uh, an exploitation film outfit. And while they were in Dallas, they were also intent upon buying up films of local origin that looked as though they could compete on the national market. Uh, Hence, uh, uh, the presence of New World Cinema in Dallas, and hence the presence of the companion company in Dallas, which was called Film Dallas Investment Fund one. Wow. That's the outfit that the, that's the one that handled the artistically pretentious pictures. Okay. Okay. So who handled Mountaintop Motel Massacre then? Well, that was a, that was a, that was a new world and uh, proud of it. Although I, it didn't perform well for new world. It did not. Now, the, I think really of all of Jim McCullough Sr.'s films, probably Aurora Encounter from 86. Is probably the one that did the best. Uh, am I right yes. about that? That's a parallel companion production to Mountaintop Motel Massacre, and it did do marginally better because mainly because Mountaintop Motel Massacre was doomed from the start to become part of the video slasher boom. Uh huh. Uh huh. As opposed to the theatrical. Uh, eighty three was a rocky patch for um, low-budget horror films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, uh, the the pictures were beginning to fade from the big screen, and the rumblings of an emerging uh, home video industry were showing signs that that may be the best thing that ever happened to horror films. Well, actually, it was one of the worst things that ever happened to horror films, but it did create a video market boom for pictures like this one, uh, Mountaintop Motel. And uh, a lot of pictures. I I did see uh, Mountaintop Motel Massacre on the big screen, both at a New New World preview screening for critics and in the theater. Um, And I think it was one of the last bona fide slasher films ever to get a more or less general theatrical release. Yeah, because not long after that, 85, uh, was right. when uh, Blood Cult came along here in yeah, yeah, very very few from that period were hanging on in the theaters. It was uh, Motel. Mm-hmm. Then there was a, a forgotten picture called Neon Maniacs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there was a similarly forgotten picture. What was the name of that picture? It was... Uh, uh, it had it, it had the slogan. It was called Pieces. If Pieces, that's the title, yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. With, with, with the with the cap with the captivating slogan, you don't have to go to Texas for a chainsaw massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Was it a Spanish film? Joey was asking if it's Spanish. Was that a I Spanish film? It, it, I believe it had mixed origins. Okay. It was an American production, but it had a lot of uh, European Latinate talent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on the cameras. Yeah, I, I, uh, <clears throat> I nearly got nearly got uh, an upbraiding in public one night. Uh, my wife and I went to a double bill at uh, one of the better suburban theaters. This was when two screens in one building was a big deal. And the marquee was advertising two pictures, one of which was Terms of Endearment. Mm-hmm. And guess what we were going to go see? Well, we get up to the box office and I paused and said to the ticket seller, two for pieces, please. <laughs> was like, what? Excuse me, just kidding, just kidding. And uh, so they said, that was my picture. You know, basically a, a low-budget splatter film mm-hmm. could command equal billing at a, a an equally respectable theater yeah, with yeah. with a uh, Larry McMurtry picture. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> yeah. well, the irony is the irony is flabbergasting. Well, you know, at one point, I think we ought to talk, uh, maybe even watch Aurora Encounter because it's a strange little picture. And the casting in it, I mean, it's basically about an alien visitation in, what, the late 1800s. 19th century uh, saucer crash. And yeah. it's uh, Jack Elam is in it, Peter Brown, Carol Bagasarian. But uh, the supporting cast fascinates me. Dottie West, the country music singer. Yep. Charles B. Pierce, the guy who produced and directed Legend of Boggy Creek. Yep. And Spanky McFarland. Former <laughs> and the governor of Texas. Yes. Governor of Texas, yeah. And uh, it just, uh, and okay, Mountaintop Motel Massacre, the cast is not as impressive as that, but Bill Thurman, who's the first name in the credits, and rightfully so, is really good in it. And the other guy I think is really good in it is uh Major Brock, the uh the the older guy who who plays uh kind of chums around with Thurman's character, the Reverend Bill McWilly. And right. uh, at one point there is a wonderful scene where Reverend McWilly asks uh Major Brock's character if he'd like to have dinner. And when Major Brock's character says yes, he holds up a bottle of old crow and a can of Vienna sausages, and he says, <laughs> Old Crow and Vienes, and yep. tosses the Vienes to Major Brock. Well, I did a little bit of, 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 of digging on Major Brock. This was apparently his only picture, Michael. He was a baggage handler for, handler for Delta Airlines. Yes. And some way or another, uh, uh, Jim McCullough Sr. saw him, thought he would be right for Mountaintop Motel Massacre and talked him into acting. He was a baggage handler for, gosh, I don't know, for 30-some-odd years. Yes, yes, he was. Right? Uh, Died at age 85 in 2001, and I think that is his only credit, and he's really good at it. He is excellent, a real personality, and and he plays off Bill Thurman very well. Oh, the two of them are just terrific together. Yeah. And then there's and then there is the guy and I I didn't take down his name but the guy who says he's the uh I think he tells the girls he's like president or something of Columbia Records isn't that I mean he uses a real oh, yeah. he uses a real label 
and he says something to the effect of, uh, I, I suppose you girls have, uh, you must know Barbara Mandrell. Yeah. And <laughs> he's like the, it's pretty obvious as a matter of fact that when he's trying to seduce these young women, this whole thing starts looking like a porno picture. It's just, well, you know, I mean, the characters, the mustache, the young women, the whole thing. Well, not to mention that McCulloch came from a part of the world that was pretty well populated with sleazy record company executives. Like your friend, uh, the major. Like, like Major Bill Smith. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like a crazy Cajun down at Houston. Huey B. Mew? Huey Mo, Huey right. Mo, yeah. Huey Mo, that's how you say that, yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, and you know, and the girls sing to audition for this sleaze ball. The girls sing "Help Me Make It Through the Night." Uh huh. The Chris Christopherson song, which was made a huge hit by Oklahoma's own Sammy Smith, but yes, um, I don't see anything in the credits where they actually paid to indicate they paid BMI for uh or ASCAP uh-huh. for the privilege of doing this, but they do a pretty long swath of that song. Yeah. And and they're not bad, you know, uh, but it's just now I do think and I don't really understand they don't quite convincingly bring or McCullough doesn't, and McCullough's son, you were talking about Jim Jr. Right. Wrote the script. They don't really convincingly bring the witchcraft angle back in. It doesn't seem to me at the end. It's really just an afterthought. It's it's not a picture that had much strategic planning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Or much <laughs> foreshadowing toward the end. Especially, there's not a lot of. It seems like it gets more and more toward the end as more of a collection of scenes. Yeah. And right then, then, then a, a, a cohesive whole collection of, of course, slasher movie scenes, right? Slash, slasher movie set pieces, I guess. Well, McCulloch was basically a home movie maker. And explain that a little bit. Later. That is to say, he did not have the literary background or the, or the literary sense to tell a sweeping narrative arc in a form that would propel the audience. Right. Uh, there's, there's no accounting for taste. That doesn't make a picture, <laughs> doesn't make a picture bad. It no. just makes a picture one that does not conform to the niceties of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of, a lot of effective storytellers really don't have an arc in mind when they launch into their story. And that's why so many, that's why so many oral tradition storytellers do more digressing than straightforward narration. Right, right. And, yeah. and you see, you know, this is basically a folk movie. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's Evelyn. We need to mention Evelyn. You know, when Joey and I watched the movie, and you can rent it for three ninety nine on YouTube, uh, and worth every penny. Um, uh-huh. uh, the Evelyn who comes back from the mental institution with some, for some, uh, you know, she's been there for some reason that we never really know. Um, I said to Joey, I said, boy, this is like Dallas dinner theater written all over. Evelyn's a woman named Anna Chappelle. And, um, as it turns out, 
the research I did indicate that she was a fixture on the Shreveport, Louisiana theater scene. Little theater. A lot of little theater. And she's got that. There's a, you can kind of spot those little theater actors. They've got, they play uh-huh. in the back of the house. They've got the grandiose gestures, you know, and she, she pretty much had that. And it was oh, all, yeah. I all shot in Louisiana, all shot around Shreveport. And, um, I just, I thought that was an interesting kind of way to, uh, approach that character, like a, basically a little theater you know, character actor, which is what she well, was. It's, it's you know, basically it's it's homegrown ham. It's home. It's it's like <laughs> a big slice of homegrown ham. That's exactly yeah. what it was. It's worth a look, isn't it? I mean, it's it's. Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hesitate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like, yeah, you're going to see better. You're going to see worse. I find that the worst pictures that you will see. Add to your enjoyment of the really good pictures. Of course. Of course. And as we've often said on this program and to one another in conversation, the only bad picture is a boring picture. Yep. This isn't a boring picture. It's uh, it's the storytelling is sometimes, you know, it, it seems to be a collection of scenes, maybe especially toward the end rather than a cohesive narrative, as you we discussed a little earlier, but... But right. yeah, it's still it's still worth watching, and uh, so yeah, we uh, it's worth that three ninety nine that YouTube is going to charge you for it. <laughs> Bring a bunch of your friends, get four people in there to be a dollar each, you know, so that yeah, be able to handle it. Just have a buck night, buck night in your uh, in your living room. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you working on these? What have you got out these days? We want to do a little bit of uh, a plugging of of the stuff we've got online because and and look, Michael, let's also say that we really appreciate folks uh, once they listen to the, the 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 podcast that go out and support us by buying the Forgotten Horrors books, uh, including uh, of course Fantasies in the Sand, which uh, which yeah. is I guess the one of the latest anyway, one of the more recent, and of course. Yeah. Uh, we lost a lot of momentum during the past three years of the presidential plague. Yes. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> at the same time, that's no excuse for not cranking it out. And, right. Right. And so, we, uh, my my latest title is a is a new vinyl LP edition of uh, a 1981 album that I co-produced on uh, the Texas rockabilly bluesman Ray Sharp. Yes. Yes. It, it it came out very well. We were able to intensify the live recording sound to emphasize the rhythm section more than the original engineer had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, Ray just turned 85 this past month or so. And he's delighted to see it back in front. You bet. You bet. Oh, that's true. It's, it's on Cremo Records. No, it's on Record Town Records. Record Town, because that How's was that commissioned, for? right? How's the, yeah, that's a commissioned job. How's that for a redundant name? <laughs> Record <laughs> Town Records. But, uh, yeah, it, it's a spinoff of the Record Town store, right, right. Where, uh, where Fort Worth basically has uh, gone to get its recorded music since 1957. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so where can one find this, uh, find this recording? It's online at Record Town, okay. Texas, RecordTownTX.com. 
And of course, in the in the one in the solo single location store in Fort Worth, but uh, and that's uh, we're doing these small batch uh, boutique label LPs about two a year now, and uh, good. So there'll there'll be uh, the next, the one we're working on now to get it ready for a, a prompt prompter than expected release is the lost recordings of Doyle Bramhall. Oh, nice. Very nice. So, the great, the great rock blues drummer sure. who uh, was partners with Stevie Ray Vaughan. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, these things keep turning up. Uh, and following that, we'll probably do a, uh, an LP anthology of rare phonograph records made in Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. So, so expect a you. In fact, you've played one of those selections by a band called the Rolling Stones. That's right. I sure have on my radio show Swing on This, which you can get yes. every Saturday night, seven yep. p.m. Tulsa time on PublicRadioTulsa.org. Pick yep. it up anywhere in the known universe. It's a Western swing, cowboy jazz, and maybe a surprise or two. And many times those surprises come from Michael H. Price and his Western Swing Masters. <laughs> Not that I was going to give a plug or anything, but ah, well, we do a good time to do that. Yeah, we we do that reciprocally. We do indeed. And uh, look online if you would. I've got a uh, the reissue of the horror novel Old Fears with new material. Forty years uh, from forty years ago. I can't believe that that book came out forty years ago, but. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, under under option now. And uh, we're hoping that it's going to be made into a movie. And it's a, I think, I think the new package, Ron Wolf, my co-writer, and I both wrote some new stories for it. We've got stories about how Wes Craven optioned it, Columbia optioned it, all that sort of thing that would that make good reading in addition to the story itself. And and if you want to look at something from the nineteen uh, that's got a nineteen thirties pulp vibe, I would suggest um, our our. Uh, uh, cleansing trilogy that I did with Robert A. Brown, which is online as well that you can find. But really, we just appreciate if you take a look and if something, uh, if it looks like the sort of thing you'd like, then uh, then we'd appreciate your ordering it, and we can uh, we can keep bringing these high level uh, productions to you uh, if you uh, continue to support us. Yep. Now we had the man whose fan club I once ran back in the day as the kids say, or the kids used to say. Um, uh, Bert I. Gordon uh, passed away recently at the age of 100. Um, And I was the president of his fan club back in the 1960s. He was the man who always enjoyed, as he put it, playing with size. So he made Attack of the Puppet People, which... And we might get into that at some point. Maybe maybe next time we do it, Attack of the Puppet People, which starred his young daughter, Susan, in her first, and not starred her, but she was that was her first uh, film that she made. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was also the film that the uh, Watergate burglars were watching uh, and were so distracted that they got busted. Uh, <laughs> Susan told me that story one time that the uh, the Watergate burglary. I guess we wouldn't tell it now. The people who did the Watergate burglary, the 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 guy who was who was supposed to be standing watch, was looking at Attack of the Puppet People on television, 
And yeah, indeed, Joey is like holding his head like this is too much information for him. But um, uh, so he was watching Attack of the Puppet People and was so taken by Bert's film that uh, Mm -hmm. he didn't see the people coming through to to, to bust the whole operation. So Attack of the Puppet People was what brought Watergate down, just so you know. (laughs) Uh, But we're not going to do a playing with size because, of course, he did The Spider and Amazing Colossal Man and War the Colossal Beast and and all of these things where he made stuff really big or it's an Attack of the Puppet People made stuff really little. Later on, made Food of the Gods um, and uh, uh, what was the – yeah, Food of the Gods and what was the one that he made with – with all those teenage actors, Village of the Giants. Village of the Giants, yes. Village of the Giants. We are going to look at one of his films that didn't do that, that was one of his more uh, straighter horror pictures or, or fantasy pictures, whatever you want to call them, monster pictures, yeah. uh, Tormented. Uh, oh, yeah, and not to mention a, a bona fide film noir. Absolutely, with jazz music, with Richard Carlson, and yep. with young Susan Gordon, my yeah. who's my age, um, doing a wonderful job as as one of the stars of the picture. So next time we're going to do our tribute to Bird Eye Gordon here on the Forgotten Horrors podcast and take a look at the film Tormented. So I think that's it for tonight. Yes, thank you for listening. And uh, please, if you want to, is a uh, Joey. What's our, uh, our 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 Facebook is. The Forgotten Horrors Facebook group. Forgotten Horrors Facebook group. If you want to do a request, have us talk about something, or or we'd be glad to to listen. We're always glad to hear from you. We got a lot of people that, that get on oh, there. Yeah. We got some wonderful fans out there. We got some uh, some people who are 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 really really enjoy what we do. And and you know, Joey and I were talking, Michael, before before we started um, recording, and it seems like. Just about, and I don't want to be critical at all, but I want to be very careful about how I say this, but it seems like the majority of podcasts about low-budget films fall into one of two camps. They're either just absolutely making complete fun of the pictures, or they're absolutely taking them as though they were written on stone tablets and brought down from the mountain. And... Ah. Here at the Forgotten Horrors podcast, we try and thread in between those two. And uh, we're not going to be snarky, uh, but we know these are low-budget films made by real people uh, who are trying to do their best. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of, we kind of offer, I think, a little bit of an alternative. So if you enjoy this and you think that, some of your friends might enjoy it. Please let them know because we're we're always glad to have new listeners. Sincerity is always its own reward. <laughs> that's true, and and that's why it is just it's just it's just flat out wrong to ridicule any earnest filmmaking. That's right. I remember uh, we were, Joey and I were also talking about Branson, Missouri, uh, before we were, we started the podcast. And I remember taking my boys, my sons, and my wife to see the uh, bald knobbers in Branson, yeah. Missouri. Now that's one of those. That was one of the first acts up there, and it's just complete full tilt hillbilly. I mean, it's the what's got the goofy hats and the 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 <laughs> uh, the the the, the uh, 
uh, overalls with one strap down and blacked out. Exactly. And they're playing banjos and they're doing goofy stuff. And my boys were laughing and I was afraid my boys were like maybe laughing at them because they seem so goofy. And I (laughs) bent over and I to where my boys were sitting and I said, I want you guys to remember one thing. Those people up there, they know exactly what they're doing. And the people who made these films, they know exactly what they were doing. Now, they may not have pulled it off completely, but there's no reason ever to ridicule anybody for making a stab at, at something. Uh, okay. <clears throat> They didn't, they didn't have delusions of greatness. Nope. They just want to make a movie, didn't they? Yeah, just tell the story and, uh, watching, watching some, some Bert I. Gordon pictures over again and, and a memorial tribute, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I cont- I'm continually amazed by, by how earnest his films are. <laughs> yes, they got their rough edges, yeah. They've got they've got qualities that you uh, would not find in a in an Orson Welles film, for example. But uh, by golly, they are Gordon. They got a signature style, no matter what idiom or genre he's working in, and they've got a sense of self awareness. Yeah, yeah. I remember talking to him or, or an interview maybe I saw or did, and I cannot remember. But he was talking about Beginning of the End, which is his um, film in which giant grasshoppers invade Chicago. Yeah. And apparently they got all these locusts, a certain kind of locust in to do these things. And they started dying out, and he was trying to get them, you know, get the grasshoppers to attack Chicago before they all died. And he asked the question, did you ever try to invade Chicago with a couple dozen sickly grasshoppers? Mm-hmm. There you go, Bert. Bert I. Gordon died at 100. Good life, fun movies, and we'll be talking about one of his pictures next time. Lovely. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Joey Maverick, our producer engineer. Thank you, folks, for listening. I'm John Woolley. We'll be back soon with more Forgotten Horrors podcasts.